I'm Casey. And I'm Abby. And this is the Mindful Fem. Okay, so Abby, I missed you so much because we took a break for about a week and a half, I would say. Yeah, I missed you too. I'm so happy to be back on the phone. Yeah, yeah, we went on, we both happened to be going on vacations last week, so we just kind of took the week off to just take some downtime and enjoy, but this week we are back with a brand new episode. Yes, and we are so excited to be back. We really missed, I mean, it's weird because we have gotten so used to talking for a couple hours a week and not even (laughs) just having like our casual conversations has been so weird. Um. But yeah, we're so excited to talk about this week's topic, which is environmental intersectionality. Yes, we love it. We do. Um, So since the beginning of time, Black people, Latinx people, and impoverished communities have disproportionately taken on the effects of climate change and environmental injustice. And today we want to talk about some of the ways in which those groups are taken advantage of and what can be done to give them greater representation and leverage in the environmental sphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today we just want to talk about how certain groups of people are not only at a disadvantage from the beginning to be able to take on the effects of climate change, but they're actually targeted. Mm-hmm. So just an interesting fact to start out uh, the conversation. According to a study done by, it seems like a joint partnership with Um, Yale program on climate change communication and George Mason University's Center for Climate Change Communication. Um, Black people and Latinx people are actually more concerned about climate change than white people. And the study found that 57% of black people and 70% of Latinx people are concerned about climate change in comparison to only about 50% of white people. Wow, that's, I would not have expected that. Me neither. It was definitely surprising looking at a lot of those graphics, which I can add the link below as well. But it it was really surprising. But, but then as we talk a little bit about these statistics, I think it makes a lot of sense as to how the people that are being affected most by the effects of climate change are becoming more aware of yeah that's those true. how those effects can affect I guess their future well I just said affect a lot <laughs> it's okay there's there's a lot of cause and effect going on so, <laughs> there yeah is, clearly um so first I want to start start a bit with talking about the environmental effects on specifically black people um mm-hmm. and I found a lot of this information through NAACP's website they have a great um list of resources and articles that they've created about environmental justice but according to that website even more than class race is the number one indicator of the placement of a toxic facility in the United States oh my god so that means that when big corporations and non-renewable industries are looking to put an in a new um toxic facility one of the things that they're analyzing specifically is race. Yeah. And these toxic facilities are going to increase medical conditions in the surrounding areas for things like asthma and lung cancer, among other cancers. So, wow. I mean, that's one of the most 
like A to B direct cause and effect um, statistics that I found right off the bat. Um, And I just wanted to connect this to the Black Lives Matter movement and Mm -hmm. why if if you are still for some reason confused and need even more statistics and facts to back up why you should be supporting the movement. Um, people who already have pre-existing lung deficiencies like asthma, and right now, um, statistically, 15.3% of black people have asthma, while only 7% of white people in America have asthma. Yeah. So people who have these pre-existing lung deficiencies are less likely to recover from COVID-19. And these black communities are obviously, from the fact we just talked about with toxic facilities, are already at risk and are going to disproportionately be affected by COVID-19 because of fossil fuel companies that have been already making them sick for decades and now will continue to make them sick and put them at a disadvantage for the pandemic. Yeah, that is disheartening. It's heavy. Um, yeah, it's it's heavy and it's heavy to think about how literally at a molecular level, systemic racism is just rampant in the United States. Um, but I think that's interesting, the connection that you draw between the Black Lives Matter movement and the environmental movement, because it took me a really long time to understand how the two went together. And a lot of times I felt like I had to choose between oh, am I going to, you know, care more about racial issues or more about environmental issues? Because I don't really see a realm where they all go together. But it's clear that, yeah, it's all interconnected in this holistic approach that we try and take to activism. So, yeah, I think it's great you draw that connection. Thanks. And it's also interesting just that there, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement came to a head in the middle of a global pandemic. And for a lot of people that felt divisive, that felt like, like you were saying, I have to choose between one or the other. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a place where they do converge and that in order to improve the health and safety of people, you need to be going out and fighting for the improvement of black lives um, and for that justice in order to make communities safer and be able Mm -hmm. to become more resilient against things like the global pandemic. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, we're all connected people (laughs) it's it's all connected yeah (laughs) um also um i wanted to share this great resource from someone named heidi hahn she Mm -hmm. is actually a virginia tech student right now and when i was at tech i was really involved with my um, environmental club called students for sustainable practice little shout out i love them so much um (laughs) But there was another couple of organizations, and Heidi was very helpful in a few of those organizations at Virginia Tech as well. And she also has her own Instagram account, which is called Essential Underscore Environment. Um, It's kind of like her own personal account, but she shares a lot of, you know, fun, like, facts about environmentalism, what you can do on a personal level. But she also made this really great post um, around the start, I guess, of all of the protests for Black Lives Matter, and she shared a bunch of statistics comparing the disadvantages of the Black community and Mm -hmm. those people's experiences with the effects of climate change. Mm -hmm. So something that she shared was um, that with the increase of the severity of storms because of climate change, communities who are already at risk will have more difficulty recovering from these storms. That makes sense. People that you know, are already struggling in either 
financial ways or in I don't know I guess I guess any any way that a community could be struggling um, either on an individual level or even a local government level they're going to have more difficulty acquiring the resources to recover from a severe storm and she said in her post that the south is four times more likely nowadays to have a significant storm or flood and more than 50 percent of the united states black citizens live within the south and that the increasing storms are going to have a greater effect on the southern part of the country so i just thought again that was really interesting that even on a physical location level not even talking about the you know systemic racism that's happening on a on a psychological level just the physical Mm -hmm. location of where you are is also disproportionately affecting black people yeah yeah and I remember actually like going off of that I remember um studying uh sustainable development in college and one thing that shocked me was like not only does this happen in the U.S. but it happens all around the world in places that are more likely to be affected by natural disasters, those are actually the places that lack the funding and infrastructure that would allow you know their structures to stand in case of a flood or a tropical storm. And so essentially what these communities do is like every time they experience something, a storm or a flood related to climate change and global warming, their infrastructure is completely destroyed and washed away, but they just rebuild it the same because there's no resources to make it like weatherproof. So it's, yeah, it's this like vicious cycle that we're trapped in. Oh, yeah. And then I I wanted to talk a little bit also about the environmental effects on impoverished people. And this one I feel um, very passionate about, particularly because I studied food insecurity in school. Mm-hmm. And um, I just saw a lot of this firsthand you know we live in a community that was more well off in Blacksburg but surrounding us was the Appalachian community which is extremely impoverished Mm -hmm. um and just to introduce the idea of food insecurity is the concept that many people have an unreliable and an unpredictable access and or availability to nutritious and diverse and very importantly, culturally acceptable food. Um, And the difference between access and availability is it's the idea both that there's, there's food that's readily available to you that you can easily get to. And also that that this is abundant and it's a reliable source. And like I was saying, it's something that is, acceptable to you to eat not just you know sustenance not just bread you know Mm -hmm. um so impoverished communities are statistically the most food insecure communities which makes sense if you don't have as much money you're not sure if you're going to have the money to be able to buy food especially food that's more expensive like fruits and vegetables um and because of this those impoverished communities are targeted by companies that prey on vulnerable communities um Mm -hmm. so dollar stores especially are replacing and have been replacing grocery stores in many poor and rural towns um so that dollar store is what is offered to people as an immediate source of food whereas you know people could drive farther to go get grocery store food if they really need it but clearly if 
someone already lives farther away from an access to resources and they're given an access to food right in their town. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't you take that if it's going to be less gas, okay. less time and less money? Um, exactly. So dollar stores have been preying on these communities. They see it as an access to more business, more revenue, yeah. but dollar stores often only offer non-perishable and frozen foods mm-hmm. and little to zero produce for purchase. So if, if you are buying frozen vegetables, there are arguments around that being actually pretty good for you, you know, when the, yeah, yeah. when the vegetables are frozen, they're at their peak ripeness. So that can be good, but how not even being given the option to choose to buy fresh produce as well as there's, pro- you know, how many vegetables are frozen that and exactly. offered in a small dollar store is probably broccoli and peas peas right maybe peas green beans literally so you're yeah. and maybe carrots like you're gonna have a very limited um group of options that you would have access to and also have the ability to afford right so and that, like what you were saying that like prepackaged stuff that's high in sodium it's low in nutrient dense value I've been in dollar stores. I mean, I get some bargains at dollar stores, but I could not <laughs> imagine that being where I bought my food. And my that being your only option. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's more of, it's not even the problem of, you know, dollar stores offering food. It's the idea that yeah. that's someone's only choice. Yeah. Um, and because of climate change, with harvest seasons becoming more unpredictable due to climate change, the cost of, not only the cost of nutritious food is going to go up, um, and it's going to become especially more expensive in areas where it's already difficult to obtain nutritious foods. Yeah. Yeah. So it's only going to get worse. And it's, it's again, just a, a reminder to me that food securities, it's, it's such an interesting topic. And if you want more resources on it, anyone just message me on Instagram and I'll give you more resources. <laughs> but the idea is that there is an abundance of food in this world and for some reason the majority of the f- the world is hungry and it's the idea that the way that we're distributing food and the way that we are choosing to grow our food is unsustainable and yeah. unequal and in- inequitable <laughs> yeah. so and even the way that our capitalist structures are set up right now it is a system where you know, we already talk about this wealth gap and this wealth divide, but yeah, as climate change becomes a bigger issue, as resources become perceivably more limited, we are going to see the haves continue to have even more and the have-nots just, yeah, continue to plummet. So it's scary. (laughs) It is scary. And it's just upsetting that our foundation is so it's broken. And now that climate change is really hitting the fan and we need to buckle in and start making change happen in order Mm -hmm. to keep ourselves safe and healthy. It's too, like, it's not too late, but our foundation really needs to completely be rebuilt. Yeah. But yeah, Casey, let's talk a bit about um, how the green movement and the environmental movement has really been whitewashed, especially in the media. So, yeah. Let's jump into whitewashing the green movement. So not only are black people and people of color more affected by climate change and global warming, like you were saying earlier, Abby, 
but they're also disproportionately represented in legislation and organizations with goals of environmental conservation. And for many reasons, this is a huge problem. I mean, we talk about lack of representation in many other areas of the media, but especially in legislation, um, it's even more important. So with the stats and the numbers that you shared, I guess it leaves us with the question, why is the green movement so whitewashed? Um, and so in doing research on this, I learned a lot and it was really eye-opening. Um, so I'm just gonna share some of what I've learned with everyone today. <laughs> <laughs> So when we think of the stereotype of the environmentalist or what the stereotypical environmentalist looks like and what's portrayed in the media or even pop culture, we don't typically envision a person of color. I mean, I know that I don't. So the green movement is heavily dominated by white people, and there's a reason for that. So um, I'm actually going to link an article by Vice in the resources of this podcast, but it explored more about how this came to be. And I thought it was really interesting because it talks about how many of the people that we know and study in history that were considered environmentalists, like Henry David Thoreau in English literature, who literally took to the wilderness to be one with nature, he also had very racist and white supremacist ideologies about who nature belonged to and what preserving it meant and what that was about. So literally, in one of his quotes, he says, um, in, in his work Walking, he says, I think that the farmer displaces the Indian even because he redeems the meadow and so makes himself stronger and in some respects more natural. So when I read this, I like internally screamed a little bit um, <laughs> because, um, I mean, let me know what your interpretation is of this, but my interpretation was that basically nature is this commodity that needs to be owned and taken and the Native Americans and indigenous populations on the land at the time were supposed to be displaced in order for the white man to be able to conquer it and therefore becoming more natural and more one with nature. So in order to become one with nature, you had to conquer it and steal it and take it. And um, that just sounds really messed up to me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's pissing me off also because I had to read his shit in high school. Did anyone yeah. else have to read Walden in like 11th grade I mean English? Because yeah. I did. And to be fair, I'm pretty sure I skimmed half of it because that shit <laughs> is long. It's, it's so like long. 600 pages of, you know, him getting up, going to the fields every morning, which yeah. some was interesting. But I, I, I literally I had no idea. We didn't learn yeah. about any. We didn't learn about that we at all. We don't learn about it. Nope. And I interpret that quote um, the same that you do, and it's it makes me so upset that you know people who were conquerors and I guess people who were environmentalists years ago believed that owning land and controlling land is what makes you more at one with nature, mm -hmm. and that just does that just doesn't add up. It doesn't. No. It doesn't make any sense, but you know what? It makes sense within the scope of how we view the world and how we view race and how we treat indigenous populations and minority communities. So in that realm, it does make sense. Yeah. Um, so next going more into this idea of like stereotypes, I don't know about you, Abby, but when I think of stereotypes or narratives about who camps, I create this image of like a really scruffy white dude roughing it up in cargo shorts. Um, but I also think like, I'm like Sacagawea. She was literally guiding the two scruffy white dudes in the wilderness. 
And Charles Young, someone that I didn't even learn about until I started researching for this podcast, was the first black U.S. National Park superintendent. And he transformed the Sequoia Forest into Sequoia National Park. And I probably, there's a majority of people that don't even know about that and don't even know the work that has been done um, on his end. I'm, I'm honestly pissed right now because I went (laughs) to Sequoia National Park first time last summer and I loved it I really think it was like one of my favorite parks I've ever been to yeah didn't know didn't literally didn't know that at all didn't even learn that when I was there no plaques about it anywhere like maybe I was just not reading it but I'm shocked it's probably not you because yeah like you know how like these national parks you walk in and they make sure you know who founded them Yes, with some big-ass memorial or something. Exactly, a statue, a mandatory plaque that you have to read on your way into the park. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but of course, you know, I don't know. It wasn't surprising to me, but yeah, like like you said, it made me angry. I was like, wow, of course we don't know about this. So even more so, I think that there's this idea that to have an impact in the movement, um, environmentalism can only take place in rural areas or in the center of nature. But another black female activist um, that I discovered researching for this podcast is uh, Majora Carter. So she's an active black female environmentalist who's been active since the 90s. And she fought for the first open waterfront in the South Bronx um, that had been the first one in over 60 years. And she also founded a grassroots environmental organization that's focus was to give poor and environmentally oppressed New Yorkers a voice in the movement. Um, So the activists of color are out there, and there are so many contributions from Black and Indigenous communities. We're just whitewashing our history. Yeah, we're just not talking about it. And we're not praising the environmentalists that aren't white like we would the white environmentalists. Right. Like, why why the hell? Why the hell have I heard about Teddy Roosevelt like 10,000 times? I'm sorry, but like, I know he did a lot for our parks and whatnot. But there were so like literally the, you know, Charles Young, he helped start that park and I never learned about him. Right. I know. Yeah. And Theodore Roosevelt was another one that literally, you know, we like name a forest after him. But he actually that's another scenario where he went in and claimed land from indigenous populations and sanctioned it off and then redesignated it as a natural area. And like, what sense does that make? It doesn't. But yeah. Oh. I wanted to add there are there are so many movements these days too for um starting like urban farming and particularly focusing on areas that are impoverished um and there was one organization that I heard about recently from one of my supervisors at my job he said he just donated to this group yeah um and they're called the Urban Growers Collective and it's a program that was co-founded by two women to improve financial and food security um, for Chicago residents through urban farming and it's community-based. Mm. So the hands that touch the soil, that grow the plants and that choose the plants to grow and then get to go harvest and eat all that food are all members of the community. And there are, through the Urban Growers Collective in Chicago, there are eight urban farms in their program and all of those farms are on Chicago's South Side. And demographically, that area is 78.5% black and 18.1% Hispanic. So I thought that was really interesting too. And like, clearly they're targeting communities that 
are struggling in the way that they're not getting the access to produce from anyone Mm -hmm. else. So they have to create their own organization to help their own community in a community-based movement, basically. And I I think that's great, but it's just like frustrating because, you know, it's good that people are able to start something for themselves and Mm -hmm. choose what they want, choose what they need. But it's like, why couldn't the government have stepped in and listened to their own people exactly. and what they need and filled that need with the abundance of money that they may have. Yeah. And that's, that's like such a great initiative. I'm so glad that that exists. And it's like, you know, with the existence of this, you start thinking about how many communities lack that, how many communities don't have an organization like this, noticing a need and going in and doing this. Um, so we need more of that. And also this reminds me that I'm so sad to say this because I love Trader Joe's and I even follow an account on Instagram that's Black Girls and Trader Joe's <laughs> and I just love them so much. They're but good. I learned recently that Trader Joe's specifically does not go to impoverished communities or communities of color. Like they don't put grocery stores in those communities purposefully. And that's really messed up. That's think- so upsetting. Yeah, it needs to be the opposite because Trader Joe's has a pretty low price point for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I used to be able to shop there when I was living on my own for the first time. I could get two weeks of groceries for under $50. And, like, why? Why wouldn't you use that low price point to benefit more communities? So Trader yeah. Joe's needs to do better. Step up, Trader Joe's. Step up. And that's, like, and they're, of course, like, they're not the only ones. And speaking to a completely, you know... I guess there's a different reason because Whole Foods is expensive AF, but oh yeah, <laughs> Whole Foods never puts their grocery stores in anywhere but affluent communities. I it just they're not the only ones, but mm-hmm. it is upsetting that a company like that that is already a little more affordable for people and clearly they have a demographic. There's an Instagram account called Black Girls and Trader Joe's. Like they have a demographic that would buy their food. Yeah, if only they were willing to put it in a place that both wants and needs it. Yeah. Mm. Wow. What a shame. It is a shame. I love Trader Joe's. Their food is so good. <laughs> it's just devastating to know that, yeah, that's what's going on. You just need to demand uh, more from them, you know? Yeah, that, that's true. Yeah. Just try and better them from the inside out. <laughs> okay, so transitioning now, we're going to talk about who we are as environmentalists and why we entered the environmental movement. So, Abby, do you want to speak to this a little bit? Sure. Um. Well... I think mine was pretty similar to some of my friends who joined the movement. I, in high school, was very environmentally minded. I took environmental science classes. I Mm -hmm. loved hiking. I loved being outdoors. Um, And I became a vegan because I watched a Netflix movie called Cowspiracy um, and began watching more documentaries. And so for me, I think the initial entrance into the environmental movement had to deal a lot with um, environmental impacts of uh, non-renewable resources, of fossil fuel industries, and um, unsustainable practices of the agricultural industry. Um, That's what really put me into it. And I mean, from there on, it kind of dictated my studies. I went to school for geography and focused a lot on environmentalism there as well as Mm -hmm. I took a lot of ag classes about food security and got a minor in that so 
it really started affecting what I studied and I was very passionate about it, very passionate still about particularly food security. Um, and I think in the past six months since leaving school, you know, I, I, like I said, I was, um, in a club at school all about sustainability and that really helped me keep on top of my practice of learning new things and keeping myself and my studies fresh and what's the next move in the fossil fuel industry or what are they doing and Mm -hmm. I don't know just Mm -hmm. keeping myself really informed and since leaving school I have struggled a bit with that and I've started following more accounts on social media and I think also since the Black Lives Matter movement, I've realized that my own feed of what I'm intaking is very mm-hmm. whitewashed and yeah. trying to diversify what I'm taking in. Um, doing something like the research for this podcast, I learned so much just in doing the research for this and yeah. realizing that I need to kind of reset a little bit and just learn a little bit more about what I'm taking in and how that might be a very small sliver of what's actually going on in the environmental movement. Right. I think that's really powerful that you've continued to explore that after college because, you know, in college when you're surrounded by all of these like-minded people that are doing the same things as you, it's really easy to get swept up in what everyone else is doing. But to continue to ask those questions and explore when you're kind of on your own and figuring out what your own life is going to be about individually, yeah, I think that's really powerful. So kudos to you. Thank you. What about your your journey? How did you enter the environmental sphere? Um, yeah, so I kind of had two things. So um, Lauren Singer is a really prominent figure in the environmentalist movement. And some of you listening to this podcast might know her as the girl with all of her trash in a jar. She like kept her trash in a mason jar for three years, and that was all of the trash that she had accumulated. And then she gave a TED talk on it. And I remember watching this TED talk and I was like, what a novel idea that all of your trash goes into a jar. And that's like your impact for for three years. And so I, I think it just like got me thinking about that. But I think what the real catalyst for me was when I did my study abroad, um, I was living in Ethiopia for a month and I remember they didn't have like a localized trash system where people would come pick up your trash from in front of your house. Um, the community was just not structured like that. We were living in a desert. I was living in a compound with like priests. And basically what you did was you would take your trash. Everyone had a little trash can in their room. When your trash was full, you would take your trash and you would walk it out through the farms, like through the cows, and you would dump it into a little hole. And every couple weeks, they would burn the trash in the hole. And so I like waited. I like dreaded this. As soon as they told me that, I was just dreading it. I was like, I don't even want to see what's in the hole. I just like, hopefully in this month, I just don't accumulate that much trash. But inevitably I did because I was drinking like liter, like two or three liters of water a day in these water bottles. And I was stacking those up in my room, just avoiding like throwing them away. I had like 40 water bottles just in my room. I had like a full trash can. And then I remember the day that I finally went and I walked out there and I threw all my stuff into this hole. I was just like so sad. I was like, wow, I can see everybody's trash. I can see the snacks that we'd been eating like at lunchtime, all of the wrappers and things Mm -hmm. like that. 
And it was just really, really overwhelming to me. It was like the first time that I could ever look in and like just see what I was playing a role in accumulating. And so coming back from that, I was just like, I have to find a way to do better and I have to find a way to lessen my impact because even, you know, some of the trash that they were burning, it doesn't all go up in flames. And even when it does, you know, it's just CO2 in the atmosphere, which is another issue that we're having. So that for me really was the catalyst. And then similar to you, you know, I went to college and I felt like I just had to be more mindful and I met a lot of like-minded people. And I think one of my biggest regrets is not being a part of a formalized organization that really paid attention to environmental issues. I wish that I had done that. Um, But I think, you know, through knowing you and through knowing friends of ours and APO and people who are making strong strides to lessen their impact, I learned a lot through that. Um, And, you know, since graduating, like one thing I really wanted to focus my Fulbright on was sustainability. And so the location that I ended up being in just happened to be like a really good prime example of energetic sustainability on an island and how they were using hydroelectric energy to power the island. And so living there for six months was really eye-opening too because I was making a documentary on it at the time and just learning so much about other ways that we can lessen our impact. So for me, it kind of took it from that small scale of, you know, how much trash am I creating to a large scale of where's our energy coming from and what do we do when our non-renewable energy resources run out? Um, So it's something I'm still trying to explore and I'm still trying to pick my next pivot point. But like you, when this Black Lives Matter movement started and I was looking at my Instagram feed that was so full of so many resources about the environmental movement, I had to ask myself why I was only seeing white people and just an extreme lack of people of color, even though there's so many, like you were saying, indigenous populations and people of color being impacted even more so by this issue. And something really special, I I know I shared this with you, I don't know if I've shared it on the podcast, but something really special that happened to me was that Lauren Singer, the girl whose podcast I listened to, or her TED Talk I listened to that started it all for me, actually followed me on Instagram. Um, I had like reached out to her about, you know, intersectional environmentalism because she was seeking to Uh, educate herself more about how she can branch out into communities of color with her environmental movement and I had sent her some resources and she was like thank you so much and she followed me on Instagram yeah it was like really full circle for me but um you know obviously I'm going to continue working on my own personal journey but I was like yay that's so cool so so yeah I guarantee so many people know who she is she's such a like visual like people think of that image of her with the jar you know yeah exactly but I think it would be a really cool idea maybe we can do this in the future because we've both traveled a lot and we plan to do some travel episodes maybe we could talk a bit about what we've seen in our travels in terms of environmentalism Mm, yeah because I definitely have some stories from Ecuador that I could share too that are just like really heart-wrenching because you know there are communities that just aren't even given the option to think about Right. think about what they're doing and how that will impact like they just don't have the money or the time mm-hmm. um where I, you know like like where I was I had some of yeah. those those conversations and those experiences while also living in the Amazon rainforest which is supposed to be like yeah, the wow. breathing lungs of our <laughs> world so yeah. so yeah I think it would be cool to do an episode on some of the experiences we've had in a bunch of different places Yeah, I agree. We're due for a travel episode anyway, so let's do it. Yeah, that would be fun. But okay, so 
let's talk about what the environmental movement is and isn't to us. So environmentalism is, you know, a whole concept in and of itself. But then as people enter the movement and become activists or self-identified environmentalists, it means something really different and really personal to each person. So let's talk about that. So I think for me, something that I struggle with within the environmental movement is not the violence of the movement, but I guess that there are just several forms of activism and some of those forms I think I kind of struggle with. Um, But I also struggle a bit with um, the environmentalism that is only posting pictures where you look like crunchy granola and Mm -hmm. like camping in nature or whatnot. Um, So something that environmentalism is to me is making concrete incremental changes in your life that cause personal change because that is an important part of the movement. It's not just suing large corporations or changing legislation. It's what can I do in my own life to not only change my physical impact, but change my psychological structure and how I view certain certain topics and certain Mm -hmm. norms that maybe could Mm -hmm. be changed if only my mental... I guess attitude changes because I think yeah. there are a lot of things where people are like, Oh, I can't compost. That's too hard. Can't do that. Right. I don't have, right. I don't have space to do that. Or like you could be composting in your freezer or, you know, in that little square of your backyard. And yeah. I think that's something I've definitely learned that like sometimes legislation or talking to government officials um, is too much. Like, it's a, mm-hmm. it's it's going to take a full-time job of many people to put in that work and get it done and people like you know the sunrise movements doing that every day they have teams across the country mm-hmm. doing that but as an individual who has your own job and your own life and only so much that you can do in 24 hours a day there are things that you can do just a little bit every day to make a change yeah. um, so that's what it one one thing that it is to me but I'm curious what it is to you yeah um well you bring up a ton of good points when you say that because I think a lot of people assume that activism um like formalized activism and government action and targeting legislation is the only way to make a change in the environmental movement and I hear with so many people that I talk to that they feel like It's just too big of a problem. Like, what is one person going to do? What is one action going to do? But I think what, you know, the larger issue at play is here is that too many people believe that. Like, too many people believe that themselves as individuals can't educate themselves and make small changes in their lives in order to be a part of the movement. And the reality is you can because there's so many ways to be an activist. You don't have to be at protests or you know, the best composter or sewing your own cotton clothing. Like there's so many (laughs) other ways to be an environmental activist. And even, you know, on the topic of activism, even a Black Lives Matter activist, even a, you know, minority community activist. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so thank you for saying that because I I feel like, you know, a ton of people need that message. Um, But yeah, for me, yeah, what the movement is and isn't to me. Um, For me, you know, I want to talk about how being a black female in the environmental in the environmental movement has caused me to view and shift 
certain topics a certain way. So it's often like seen or viewed, or I've often seen or viewed the movement as, you know, having a choice between straying from my blackness because there's so many stereotypes like black people don't camp or black people aren't really involved in the movement or they just don't care. And I held so many of these views for a really long time. And so, like you were saying, that crunchy granola view, there's not a lot of black people that are envisioned in that stereotype. Not a lot of black people are considered crunchy granola. And when I realized, like, you know, I have some crunchy granola tendencies, I was like, wow, (laughs) does that take away from my blackness? Um, And, you know, it's like almost sounds stupid to have this conversation with yourself, but at the same time, it's like a really real problem um, that I think intersectional environmentalism needs to address. And in kind of, you know, thinking about how I wanted to answer this question, I was looking at an article um, by an organization called Mother Jones, and it talks about the black version of the environmentalism movement and the white version of the environmental movement. And I think it said really well in one quote that says, Many people and leaders in green organizations have inherent prejudice and believe that black people, poor people, indigenous people, and people of color aren't fit to have a voice in these movements because, quote unquote, black people are too occupied with being black and poor people are too occupied with being poor to be occupied in green movements. And, you know, going back to everything that we've kind of discussed throughout this podcast, that really is a view that I held. I really thought, you know, not a lot of people of color are concerned with the environmental movement or concerned with climate change because they have bigger issues to worry about. And even, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, as I still continue to try and educate myself about environmentalism, I've focused less on the intersectionality of how all these things are connected and more so on feeling like I almost had to choose a movement. I almost had to choose whether I was going to be more outspoken about environmental issues or more outspoken about black issues, indigenous issues, and people of color issues. Mm -hmm. And like we identified, you know, they all go together. They're all interconnected. Um, So I think, you know, along my journey, as I've kind of realized what this movement is and isn't to me, I think it really is about creating unity and realizing how many similarities we have in the environmental issues that we're having Um, people of color aside, um, like the color of your skin aside. And one thing that the article talks about and I think illustrates really well is how environmentalists take up the crux of the movement to fight for the betterment and the preservation of, it says it like this, what they see outside their windows. So our perceptions of what our environment is, is what you see when you look out a window. And so the same way that I had to challenge myself to be like, oh, environmental conservation doesn't just take place in nature or rural communities. It also takes place in urban areas. And so, you know, what everyone ultimately wants are, again, what the article says, safe places to live, safe places to work and play, clean spaces and sustainable and long lasting communities. And I think, you know, in adapting my own definition of what intersectional environmentalism is to me, it's it's all of these things. It's finding a unity within the movement where everyone can live a safe and healthy life surrounded by nature in a sustainable community. Yeah, that's so well said. And it's so Thanks. It it is weird like we like we were talking about. We I think everyone has a tendency to write off people that are struggling and say that they need help but that 
they can't do it for themselves or that they have to focus on something like money. They just have to focus on Mm -hmm. making enough money. And the truth is like that first statistic we said, there are more people in those communities that are concerned about climate change than there are people outside of those communities. So those people are more in touch with their needs than anyone else because they're living those lives and they're feeling those effects. And the idea that all of these communities, like the idea of environmentalism and the black lives matter movement and impoverished communities and, you know, non-white people of color communities that are struggling all converging in their needs. And yeah, it's just, it is, I think it's like hard to, I guess, conceptualize until you have all the facts and all this information that is out there. Mm-hmm. And it is, it, it definitely changes my perspective. I mean, I'm the same when I think about the word environmentalist. I think about, I mean, I have a lot of white environmentalist friends who mm-hmm. are super crunchy granola and like, <laughs> yeah. it's not a bad thing that that's their lives and that's how they live but it's like I also have environmental friends or not white and don't really live that stereotype but yeah but it's I still don't think about them as much as I think about like the whitest person I can imagine yeah in a flannel cooking I don't know they're like vegan oatmeal over <laughs> exactly. fire in their tacos and that's yeah. not bad. It's just like the fact that not all of those different people in my life are represented in my stereotype. That's bad. Yeah. yeah. And I think the danger there is that environmentalism becomes associated with whiteness. And I think that's what we need to do the work of consciously stepping outside of. Because, you know, like you were saying, I have this very singular identity of what an environmentalist or a vegan or a crunchy granola looks like and in my head they are not a person of color and they're not an indigenous person and that's a problem it is and it's not you know it's not entirely on us of course like we were talking about a lot of it is what we've been taught and what our education system has perpetuated as the truth of the white man being the savior of our environment. (laughs) But I will say that through my college experiences, through my amazing friendships that I've made, I have seen a shift in the gender focus of the movement. I have Mm -hmm. seen a lot, like I've learned most of my information from fellow women and I feel like there's a little bit more representation there. So I think that's a good step forward, but obviously we have a lot farther to go. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so our last question to ourselves is how we're integrating principles of environmentalism and what we're learning about this movement into our lives. So do you want to take it away? Sure. So one thing that I think I learned the most out of the environmental movement, like I was saying, making small incremental changes in your life can actually make a big difference, not only in your physical impact, but in your mindset. And I think one way that you can do those small incremental changes is through what you spend your money on. And the power of the consumer is so understated in our society. What you're spending money on, what companies you are giving money to, and how you're using your money to demand change is so powerful. If 
So, so that's something that I've definitely been focusing on and basically deciding that certain companies aren't going to be getting my business anymore, which is hard to do for some businesses that I support (laughs) that I know are shitty. Um, Their practices just don't support what I want. (laughs) So that's hard to do, but do some research, decide what's important to you and what's not important to you. And if that company is doing something sketchy and you find that out you need to stick to your guns and decide all right they're not getting my money anymore so that's something I've definitely done with my clothing like I think over time anyway I've kind of moved a lot more to thrifting most of my clothes Mm -hmm. but I read an article today that said that my favorite clothing company American Eagle supports (gasps) um bad I guess labor practices. Um, I didn't read oh, yeah. it. It was like they were included on a list of like bad companies. Yeah. I saw that too with Aerie. I don't know if it was Aerie, but it was like it was a list of companies like Kendall and Kylie and H and M. I was like, okay, not surprised. Those and then like number Aerie. seven on the list was American Eagle, and I was like, no, I yeah. that's I only thrift my clothes or buy my clothes from American Eagle. So I was like, well, I'm screwed. But it's like one of those <laughs> moments where you're like, I guess I got I can't unlearn this now. And I'm either right. going to choose to be ignorant and keep giving them my money or I'm going to change over time. I'm not going to like throw away all my American Eagle clothes, obviously, but over time I'm going to find yeah. other companies that I can put my money towards. And also on that point of using my money in a in a powerful way, I guess, I'm about to move in the coming months. So I'm looking at where I can get my furniture, where I can get um, things I need for my kitchen, like more beeswax wrappers or more Pyrex containers to put my food in, like instead of, you know, cause right now I'm starting basically from a clean slate. I've got a lot of stuff I'm moving in, but like for the new things I need, I don't, I'm not going to be throwing anything away. I'm just going to buy new things that are more sustainable and right. reinforce my sustainable practices. Yeah. I think, Honestly, that's going to be so fun because, you know, like finding unique furniture at Goodwill and stuff like that. That's always a fun time. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. And I've got like a little wish list of like all the fun reusable goodies that I'm going to try and invest in. Yay. Aw. But I am sorry. Yeah. No, I Aerie is uh, like a child company under American Eagle that I have been loving for the past couple of years and I've been buying so many stuff from them and like you when I found out that American Eagle's labor was unfair and they're underpaying their workers and they're using sweatshop labor, I was like, I'm just, I just can't, it's so hard. <laughs> and oh, so was that right on the backs of, I don't know if you heard about Goya donating money to the Trump re-election. Well, I saw a freaking picture of Ivanka holding up the Goya oh. as if she's ever eaten a can of beans in her fucking life. Exactly, and I just... I love adobo so much. So I'm so sad. <laughs> it's rough. Uh, but, you know, we'll make it through. And, okay, so, yeah. So, I guess for me, how I'm integrating principles, for the past couple of years, I really had been trying to go completely zero waste and trying to zero waste my makeup routine, my beauty routine, things like that. Um And, you know, then as time went on, and I think I started learning more about the zero waste movement, there were some qualms that I was having because I felt like 
the zero waste movement was also being capitalized. Like it was advertising all of these zero waste swaps that you can do and all that is great. But I think what it inevitably was calling people to do was to be like, okay, today I'm starting a clean slate. I'm going to throw away all my plastic Tupperware. I'm going to buy all this new stuff. And it's like, you know, the very movement that you're trying to engage yourself in, you're like throwing away plastic and you're not reusing things and you're buying new things. And so I think as I got more realistic with myself about how I was going to lessen my environmental impact, I really had to be real with like zero waste is going to be a lifelong goal of mine, but I will probably never fully achieve it just because it's almost impossible like in our society it is almost impossible to be completely zero waste and even people that claim to be zero waste there are still things that they have to purchase and throw away and recycle so I just you know want to kind of get rid of that impossible standard for myself um, and instead just focus on things that I can forego buying like impulse buys I don't need that clothes that I don't need I won't buy it. Like you were saying, I'll try and thrift my clothes. I'll be more mindful of how I get rid of my clothes. Like I've really been into like buying from Depop recently or selling my clothes on eBay or selling items that I no longer use. Um, And just kind of giving the items that I have a second life because I recognize, you know, just because I'm done with them doesn't mean, you know, no one else can have use of them. So that's kind of more of what I've been working on, but I also... Hopefully, as I move out in the coming months, want to get back into composting and really get serious about that because that's something that I'm really interested in because I know how I cook and I know that I have a lot of food scraps and things and I'd love to explore like making my own vegetable broths and doing things that just kind of create a holistic like what I eat, what I dispose of, what I'm using. It's all sort of interconnected. So that's my goal for myself. That's very cool. That's awesome. Thanks. Thank you. But I love the composting idea. I have definitely been kind of afraid to start it because I just don't want to get it wrong. But you know right, what? There, right. You, you got to start somewhere. It's not that expensive to start. You just need a good bin. Um, exactly. And I think it'll be weird when I'm in an apartment, but I think I'm going to find a way to do it. I think it's definitely doable. Yeah. I think they do, like, you can do balcony compost. There's, like, small compost boxes that you can get delivered to your home and just compost like within that small unit okay um, cool. yeah so we can talk about this more Sweet, um yeah. w- within one another but yeah I like have been <laughs> learning a lot about composting that's super exciting so Sweet. let me know if you have plans of starting one yeah I definitely want to once I'm moved in and settled yeah I definitely will yeah as you all know we love our resources on we, do. we do we <laughs> do and we so do, we do have it. the list this week. I feel like we have a hundred <laughs> resources. We have so many, but they're all amazing. So please take note, especially of the Instagram ones. If Instagram is more your vibe, um, we have a ton of Instagram resources for you all. Yeah, and we list. Uh, we also have a list of articles that we referenced for this episode in our research. Mm-hmm. So those we won't talk about. We're just gonna list. Um, all of those resources they're all great resources obviously so definitely use those Mm -hmm. if you're looking to get some more information okay so yeah the first resources that we're going to be talking about are all resources for instagram so like we were talking about earlier kind of just being more cognizant of our instagram feeds being really whitewashed and trying to incorporate more people of color into the environmentalism movement in our lives um here's some really helpful instagram accounts that i follow so the first one 
is Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. She's an amazing powerhouse of a woman. She's a marine biologist and a writer and a black woman and a co-founder of Urban Ocean Lab, which is a think tank for conservation of waterways in coastal cities. And you can follow her at Ayana, that's A-Y-A-N-A, Eliza on Instagram. Okay, and the next one is actually a really novel idea. It's called Celsius Social, and it's an eco-friendly garment care provider that's located in Brooklyn. And I mostly follow their account, obviously I'm not located in Brooklyn, but I mostly follow their account because it's like a laundromat, but it's a next level laundromat. And they are revolutionizing the way that we use laundromats and they allow like workspace areas and they have all this really nice furniture and they, they just launched a yoga mat cleaning cycle in their launder, uh, laundromat where you can bring your yoga mat and put it in and it'll clean it. Dang. Um, I know it's so cool. Um, and also founded by two women of color. Um, okay, the next one is, her name is Natalie Neary. She is an Afro-Brazilian queer woman who makes amazing posts about zero waste and just general life sustainability and skincare. And you can follow her at Natalie Neary. That's N-A-T-A-L-Y. And then Neary is N-E-R-I. But we're going to post all this down below anyway. Um... I also mentioned Lauren Singer in this podcast. Um, you can follow her at Trash is for Tossers. You can also just Google her. She has a really great resume of all of her environmental works and the work that she's done in the movement. Um, and she also has a couple small companies where you can buy things to do zero waste swaps. Um, yeah, so I'll take it. I'll transition over to you now, Abby. <laughs> Next up, I have um, Queer Brown Vegan. Um, or Isaiah, and his channel is awesome. He posts a lot of like, I, I don't know, like graphics, I guess the right word for it, that are really informational. Um, but he also is a co-founder of this magazine called Alluvia, and that oh. would be a great resource. I'll, I'll add that as well. It's called Alluvia Mag, and it is specifically a publication for amplifying creative voices from like non- white people of color sphere okay. within the environmental movement wow okay so and i like really haven't heard a lot about it except through his channel mm -hmm. so i think they're pretty small okay but this is that's the i'll add the link for that awesome. magazine down there um next is marie copney which is this adorable little girl from flint and she actually wrote Obama back when he was still president and explained the situation in Flint, Michigan and how she was unable to drink the water from her sink. Um, and since Obama actually read her letter and came to Flint and met her, she has become known as Little Miss Flint and is an activist. So especially for the environmental movement. So she if you look up at little miss flint that's her account um and she's awesome i really like the stuff she shares and she's really young but her voice is really powerful so the next account that we wanted to talk about was um ie so that's at intersectional environmentalist and their account is really great they just share a lot of resources to other environmental accounts um and just to the they speak a lot to the topic of intersectional environmentalism nice 
Um, and two more for me, uh, Green Girl Leah is also um, an environmental activist. She's a younger woman of color and she just talks about um, representation. She, Abby and I found out today, she's actually a contributor to the Good Trade um, newsletter. And Good Trade is really great. They send out resources every week through email marketing um, that just let you know about new music and environmental conservation resources. And they're super cool. So actually, we can link them too. But yeah, Green Girl Leah talks about a ton of really cool topics on her Instagram. And she also just has a really nice, like, earthy sort of, I hate to say vibe, but it's a vibe. <laughs> and, um, and then the very last one. I'm actually going to go to her profile so I can make sure that I get this right. But her name is Sydney Porter, and her account, you can follow her at the Sydney Porter. Um, so Sydney is an advocate. This is what her bio says. She is an advocate for fearless and empowered birth. So I think she might work in like the doula community or the natural birthing community. Um, she's also involved in sustainable community living. And her page is just like she's a, she's a mom. She's a, a wife. She's got a new baby. Um, and yeah, her whole feed is just really uplifting, really educational. Um, and yeah, she shares things about like black motherhood, but also environmentalism and holistic living that I just really like. So, And for listening, I recommend, I still have to listen to this myself, but when I was talking earlier about Majora Carter, who is the activist that got the initiative started in the South Bronx, um, protecting coastal waterways. She actually has her own TED talk called Greeting the Ghetto, and it's about making urban spaces more green. So I recommend you all to go take a listen to that, and that's homework for myself as well. Okay, and then yeah, for online platforms, um, Geist Media Platform is a really cool alternative environmental resource. I'm a little salty because I applied for a fellowship with them and didn't get it. But when I go look at their resources, they actually write really cool articles just about different perspectives on the environmental movement, asking a lot of really cool questions that I think, um, you know, will challenge us as a generation to engage in environmentalism in a meaningful way and from a different perspective. So Greist Media Platform. So and the last resource that I have is called goodonyou.eco, and they're a brand rating site. So you can look up a brand and they'll give that brand an environmental rating based on a few different criteria. And they're specifically focused on clothing brands. So they have a ranking for probably any in, any clothing brand that you've used. You can search up that brand on their website and they'll give them a rating. So environmental, environmental <laughs> American Eagle, which I was talking about earlier, has a rating of not good enough. And they go into a little bit of description of why they're not good enough. So, yeah, that's a good website to use, especially if you're looking for new um, brands, because they have a bunch of brands that have good ratings on that website. So you can find them through there. In this episode, we talked about environmental intersectionality and how a lot of groups that are disadvantaged and targeted by fossil fuel industries and by the effects of climate change are very aware of that targeting and of those effects. We also talked about how the green movement has been whitewashed and how a lot of our upbringings and our education surrounding the green movement is very whitewashed and needs to change. We talked a bit about who we are as environmentalists, why we entered the environmental movement as individuals, and what the environmental movement means to us. 
And we also talked about how we are integrating principles and learnings from the environmental movement into our own lives. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of The Mindful Femme. We hope you learned something new and we can't wait to speak with you all next week. Yay! Bye! Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.